you're only learning your known unknowns. What about the things that you don't know you don't know? Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast and this series episode of the VocTech Podcast Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. My name is Sophie Bailey and you are very welcome. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures for supporting this new series and vocational skills development in the UK. You can follow online at hashtag VocTech and at podcast EdTech on Twitter. First up, I can't make it any more to my session at the upcoming Battle of Ideas event at the Barbican in London. But if you're into all things AI and education, then I encourage you to get on down to the Barbican on Saturday, the 2nd of November, where you can hear from my fellow panellists, Carla Ertz, Donald Clark and Gareth Sturdy. I had a quick chat this week with Harley Richardson from the AOI Education Forum to swap some of my prepared notes and to grovel about not being able to make it anymore. Okay, brilliant. So, um, delighted to be on the line with Harley Richardson. So, welcome, Harley. Hi, Sophie. Hello. So, um, Harley, I'm here to talk about uh, the discussion I was going to take part in, which was um, artificial intelligence in schools. Where is the humanity, which is taking place at the Battle of Ideas event uh, coming up at the Barbican? Um, and also to uh, grovel and, and say sorry because um, unfortunately I cannot make it anymore. But I know that you've got a fantastic lineup, and we're going to talk a little bit about the sort of notes I'd prepared in advance, anyhow. So it's part of the Battle of Ideas Festival, as you say. This is uh, second Saturday, second Sunday, the third of November. It's our fifteenth festival. It's where um, three and a half thousand plus members of the public descend on the Barbican in London uh, to debate the issues of the day. I think there's something like 100 debates over the weekend, really diverse programme, just to give you a flavour of that. Uh, we have sessions on the legacy of Samuel Beckett, the role of the modern police force, the pros and cons of video referees in football, what to do about knife crime, genome editing, uh, school exclusions, and the 40th anniversary of Monty Python's Life of Brian, plus lots on education and lots on technology. Um, there's plenty of audience participation. That's one of the things that makes the battle uh, unique and special. So we do have great speakers, but also over half of every session is dedicated to questions, comments and thoughts. So it's really a big public discussion, not a sort of traditional Q&A. And free speech is very much encouraged. So that's the battle. Um, uh, and I'm organising this uh, debate on uh, AI in schools. Uh, the background to that is that in recent years, there's been lots of people in the media and uh, uh, education conferences and possibly on this podcast arguing that um, artificial intelligence, so that's really computers which emulate human intelligence in some way, uh, saying that artificial intelligence is going to change education radically. So one person who's been saying that is uh, Anthony Seldon, who's the Vice Chancellor of the University of Buckingham. He's written a book on the topic and he says that AI can take over many of the mundane tasks involved in education and free up teachers and pupils to become uh, more fully human as he puts it so by that I think he means more creative more fulfilled 
Um, but at the same time, he also says that AI represents a massive existential threat with the potential to strip the vitality out of school and uh, of life in general if we're not careful. So that's two big polar views on it. We're going to try and explore those lines of thought and others too and try to figure out what AI might mean for the classroom in reality. We've got some brilliant speakers, as you mentioned, um, some of whom will be familiar to regular listeners of the podcast. We've got uh, Donald Clark, who uh, has many years of experience as an edtech entrepreneur. He's actually sceptical about some of the claims made about AI, but he's also going to argue that it has huge potential um, in higher education in particular. We have Dr. Carla Ayertz, uh, director of the Tomorrow Institute, who previously ran Educate, which um, helps edtech companies demonstrate the impact of their products. And she has a lot of interesting to say about the sort of philosophy of, of, of AI. Uh, Jen Person of Defend Digital Me will be there too. She uh, campaigns for the ethical use of uh, pupil data. Uh, and that's a big issue with AI because uh, machine learning requires huge amounts of personal data to, uh, to, to operate. And finally, we have uh, Gareth Sturdy, he's a teacher and he's my colleague at the Academy of Ideas Education Forum. Um, he believes that with or without AI, teaching is actually becoming more robotic. And if you just think of the uh, learning objectives and detailed lesson plans that teachers now have to prepare for every lesson, also the rise of scripted learning. So Gareth's view is that um, nothing that can be measured is worth learning. I love that. And um, yeah, as I said before, you know, if anyone's listening, uh, I went to the Battle of Ideas a couple of years ago. Uh, if you're in London, it's a fantastic venue, uh, the Barbican, which many of you will know about. Um, and it's it's kind of like a cornucopia of, of ideas. And you sort of open each door, or each room where these debates are taking place and kind of jump in and get involved. And a great place if you're into sort of thinking broadly so um, I had jotted down my notes and I wondered, Harley, whether I might do a sort of um, top of the pops rundown, uh, <laughs> slightly um, old school reference there, um, from one to 10, just some of the things that I had thought ahead of taking part in this debate. Yeah, um, go for it. Cool. So my first point was going to be that there um, are various stages of AI. Um, so narrow artificial intelligence, which is more task-based, or general artificial intelligence, which is more kind of the idea that uh, computers are starting to take advance uh, past our sort of collective human endeavor. Um, and if people are interested in these ideas, they should uh, look up The Technological Singularity, which is a book by uh, Murray Shanahan, who's sort of half at Imperial College and half at uh, DeepMind. Um, and he sort of explores the likelihood of each scenario. Um, but needless to say, we're some way off whole brain emulation. Um, even so, as uh, we should be discussing the impact of AI, especially in education, as it's here, it will develop and there are implications. Um, and I know there are some, like my friend Donald Clark, who will be on the panel, who say that the ethical fears and setting up of ethical AI institutes, uh, which is kind of on trend at the moment, is a huge waste of money as we are some way off sophisticated AI. Um, however, I'm always chastened by the notion that the word idiot comes from the Greek idiot, uh, i.e. someone who doesn't engage in political discussion. So um, I think if we're not to be merely subject to these developments, we do have to engage. And these kind of debates are brilliant for exactly that. Um, number three, why is this important? Uh, I think this is important because there are two ways AI could go in schools. 
Uh, number one is to reinforce the existing system based on the currency of grades and assessment and manic productivity. Uh, and number two is to allow for a new way of teaching and learning um, and support to uh, kind of flourish in our schools. Um, and there are huge sums of money, agendas and politics, obviously, uh, attached to both. Um, number four, one version of AI is less attractive. I, we become passive consumers of teaching and learning materials. We're nudged forward by machine learning algorithms. And in this scenario, I think it's important to question how much we're in control of our own learning. Or are we uh, merely on the railroads of an optimized algorithm? Um, and what does this mean for curiosity and choice as learners? Um, or again, is this just an extension of the idea that self-determinism at all is misplaced as we're just a series of hormonal actions with the selfish gene in charge? Uh, so interesting philosophical conundrums coming out of this in terms of what it means to be a learner. Um, Number five, our society is currently framed in terms of productivity and economy. Um, so the equinocracy is such where economics overrides other value systems. And in this society, AI could be an aid to support us in a computer-like domain where more and more information is optimized for our needs and shoveled into us at school, work and home to maintain our job prospects or to kickstart our career trajectories. Um, and, you know, one example being, you know, Amazon's um, 800 million pound announcement um, on retraining their existing staff in the age of automation. Uh, number six, however, I think that if we humans aim to survive in this fourth industrial era or, or, or that beyond uh, by competing with computers, we are destined to have a mass nervous breakdown. Uh, we're not designed to filter and navigate so much complex information. Um, and if an AI can complete narrow tasks better than humans, why bother? As they become more sophisticated and can design a thousand scenarios better than an average grad uh, and more quickly, our self-worth as learners may be in question and we will need to generate substantive reason for our being. Uh, number seven, this is where I think option two is interesting, I, uh, which is where we focus on what AI can't do and hone in there. Um, and so, um, Harley, you and I were talking about earlier um, the scenario of a child coming into school and looking hungry or looking upset and those uh, sort of indicators which, um, you know, you can have learning analytics platforms which um, identify risk factors, but there are things that uh, humans can pick up very quickly uh, and indirectly. Uh, which perhaps AI cannot do. If, yeah, if you go back to 1956, uh, John McCarthy, who was the founder, or coined the term uh, of artificial intelligence. He said, um, just to quote, uh, every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can in principle be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. Now, I think that's, that's wrong. I think most people probably recognize that's wrong. But still, there is a lot of expectations out here that... Um, AI can take over a lot of what teachers do. And, and there is a bit of a wider tendency to see people as little more than sort of organic computers. Um, this is beyond the AI discussion. But, yeah, you know, so yeah. you can nudge, nudge them into the right type of behaviours or teach using the optimal research-based teaching techniques and, you know, and it will all be fine. But, you know, I think that underestimates what it is to be a human or a teacher. Absolutely. And I guess that, that notion of, uh, being able to replicate is uh, is based on the idea of you know standardized lessons um and and any teacher listening in um i'm sure can you know imagine a lesson where a question has thrown the kind of um 
pre-organized lesson into sort of off on a tangent but actually perhaps that was the 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 kind of real kernel of learning there so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting I agree um so outside of the framework of burnt out productivity and growth at all costs economics there are values which humans cherish community and art for example and we shouldn't allow ai to drive us into being hyper productive without joy we should use it to save us time to be more human number eight this is where the humanity lies in schools for AI. Take away the crazy hours for teachers marking repetitively, eating into family time and going off sick or leaving the profession altogether. Instead, use AI like Dr. Duncan Assel from the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at the University of Cambridge to help better identify learning difficulties in children to better help them get the support they need or use eye gaze technology to support learners with cerebral palsy or autism, not to rank and demote teachers or to expect 24-7 happiness responses from students who are human beings. And this latter example is, you know, in effect as we speak in on some online uh, tutoring systems. There is AI being used to identify children carrying weapons in schools, to rank mental health from green to amber to red, and to report sexual offences on campuses. But unless this is then followed up with complex strategies to tackle the root causes, it's all short-termism and perpetuating the existing system. Number nine, if we are to become more humane about how we support our learners and our staff, we also need to prepare them better for the world that is coming. If computers will do much of the work, let's create lessons where students use AI techniques to solve challenges and understand their workings. For example, in maths with Wolfram Maths or Four Ferries for mathematical working and transparency. And let's introduce AI techniques into teacher training and specific examples of how to use AI to cut work outside of teacher time and drive time to allow children to work collaboratively and creatively as well as individually. Number 10, in all of this, we must learn the ability to critique AI in education, to understand who built it and to understand who it was tested on so that inclusion is part of its DNA. We must relearn how to connect with one another and not just the idea of progressing for individual fulfillment and gain, but using our voices. And AI must help us find our humane voices, not take them away. It's possible, but we need to make some big changes to the architecture now. So we got to the wow, end of the list. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much hoping you're going to edit in Alan Freeman's Pick of the Pops theme tune behind that when you put it into the podcast. But um, that's brilliant. It it's, uh, uh, really illustrates well how much there is in this topic. And um, I just, just to sort of go back to your point too mm. about the impact of AI, um, I think, I mean, I'm a bit of a sceptic as, as well, um, having worked in EdTech for a long while and having seen many grand claims sort of yeah. by the wayside over the years. Um, but I think it's worth taking them seriously, at least because they tell you something about what, where people's minds are at at the moment uh, and what, they, uh, what, what they're thinking. So let's just say if we did automate everything that could be possibly be automated in the classroom, you know, what does that leave for teachers to do? And I think that, you know, what, what if anything, is uniquely human about being a teacher? So that's one of the key questions we're going to try and get at. Uh, and and for me, just to give my, throw my own view in, I, I think there is something implicitly moral about a teacher standing up in front of a classroom with children and passing on what they've learned, something that can't really be replicated by a robot. It, it just, if nothing else, in that the, the teacher has themselves gone through the process of mm. learning that. 
fitting it into their own picture of the world and then un and understanding, struggling with it and understanding what makes it important and, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, saying that it's important and worth passing on to children. I don't think a robot can do that very easily. Absolutely. So sort of relaying that human experience and, you know, I've, I've been there, I've done that rather than, which, uh, which is sort of extracted AI uh, system couldn't do. Yeah, but I'm I'm also very you know open minded. I'm a skeptic, but I'm also open minded. There's you know AI technology already being used in schools. I'm hoping we're going to hear from some teachers who've had experience of that to hear what they think of it. Um, and I think um, to a certain degree, the AI discussion up to now has been really sort of a reposing of, of debates which were already happening. So, mm. for instance, the personalization you know um, issue, which uh, many people think um, AI will will uh, will um, support. Um, that's you know that's a separate that's a discussion with its own pros and cons. Um, but uh, I think you know potentially uh, AI might surprise us. It might be the things we haven't thought of yet where it really can help in the classroom. But we'll only find that out by exploring it and uh, talking about it. So uh, that's what we'll be doing. So anyone listening, uh, you can go to battleofideas.org.uk uh, or if you're on Twitter, it's hashtag battleofideasfest. Um, I think tickets are about £30. Is that right, Holly? It starts at £30, but there's also fantastic deals if you're a school student and school pupils actually can go for a, a day free. Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll hear from them as well in the discussion. Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Harley. What else? Instructure have released a report recently which claims that Britain's soft skills crisis threatens the UK's future economic prosperity. Richard Mayo and Joe Ludlow are riffing on investment of 2030 and purpose-led organisations in the UFI blog, and I'm hoping to uh, encourage them onto the podcast to explain all soon in person. And the former Chief Learning Officer for Microsoft UK, Ian Fordham, is moving on after three years in the post, and we await what's next. Right. This week, I'm in conversation with Henrietta Palmer, a strategic L&D professional and learning solutions manager at TUI, a leading and innovative travel brand in the UK. In an industry defined by the digital age and which companies have adapted to it, Henrietta is also passionate about the constraints corporate learning and development specialists exist within, unlike the wild budget utopia our state system education folk might think of when we think about learning and the corporate world. In this episode, Henrietta talks about the use of artificial intelligence to curate learning across a large organisation with keen goals. She also talks about going beyond Google searches and getting into the world of learning at work. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you'd like to be included in the next episode in our listener feature, just say hello, who you are and what you do in our 90 second voicemail platform at speakpipe.com forward slash the edtech podcast. Okay, here we go. Yeah, absolutely delighted to have Henrietta Palmer, a strategic L&D professional and learning solutions manager at Chewy on the line. So welcome, Henrietta. Hello, Sophie. 
For those who don't know, Tui, formerly Thompson, is the UK's leading travel brand with 6 million holiday makers in the UK alone and with many more internationally. And in the UK, Tui has around 12,500 employees ranging from travel agents to cabin crew, engineers and back office staff. Henrietta is responsible for ensuring Tui has the innovative development opportunities to drive the success of the Tui business. She has won numerous awards on behalf of her team, including the Bronze Awards in both Learning Technology team of the year and best learning technologies projects and in Henrietta's own words I'm a creative problem solver with 20 years experience in the field of digital learning technology moves so quickly no year is the same I love it when the impossible suddenly becomes possible and I'm always developing to keep up with change and it should be noted that across Chewy's wider range of customer base and staff base that many of the innovations that come out from Henrietta's team actually then become implemented at a global level. So Henrietta, just to kick off, perhaps you could explain to our listeners what it is that you do in a nutshell, and then some of the kind of more recent projects that you've been working Okay. I'll just start actually by explaining how I ended up in, in this world, and, and that was that when I left school, I, um, I didn't really know what direction I was going to go in. I think many people probably feel that way. Um, I'm genuinely jealous of those people that have that clear focus. So I took a number of different roles working in a number of different areas, financial services, and also working in PR and communications, marketing, and all of that sort of thing. And then while working for a financial services organization, I was given a very bad objective. The company had just invested in a new CBT area. It was 1901. And And they wanted to improve the return on investment and wanted people to go there. So with no direction, I was sent to the CBT room at least once a month as part of my annual review. The very first time I went, Julie, as expected, a light bulb came on and I found an approach and a way of learning that really worked for me. It gave me the opportunity to reflect and dive into things that I was really interested in. I could return to things that I needed a bit more study in. I wasn't going at the speed of everybody else in the room. It really engaged me. So I ended up going up there pretty much every lunchtime, building my business skills. And over that time, I also identified some of the issues with digital learning. You sometimes got stuck in a loop. It sometimes didn't give you the opportunity to dive deep enough. And I wanted to make that change. So nine months later, I joined an organization that developed digital learning. And that was in around 1999. So it really has been my passion from that point forward. So here at TUI, I started here about 12 years ago with a blank sheet of paper, and we've really gone on a long journey from that point. Part of that's been working with the technology that's available in the business. I mean, genuinely, when I started here 10 years ago, some of the e-learning that we were delivering was on the CD-ROM with a Word document that people clicked on to get to the right piece of content. Um, And now, as a company, we have around 300 thousand completions a year and there are e-learning hubs at an operational level across the business and my team's focus is really thinking about where we need to be from a technology perspective to really drive the future of digital learning across the business so that we're we're future-proof and ready for the, the the new people that are coming into the business but also keeping up with the technologies that are now available in the business and in the wider world. 
And I mean, that, that's a great point to to kind of ask sort of what technologies you're leveraging in order to help deliver some of that learning as well. Okay, we use quite a lot of different things now. We do, there's a lot of things that, that people will know about and probably be using themselves. We deliver a whole range of different content. Um, there's a sort of more traditional click next components, but we do that less and less. It seems, tends to be more when we've got something like a compliance or a legislative mm. requirement. We deliver a lot of micro learning, which will be videos. We do virtual classrooms and we also curate content. So it's not just a question of delivering content that's being created within QE, but it's making sure that people are driven to great pieces of quality content that we found out there in places like the internet or even the intranet. And, you, you know, in our previous chats, you mentioned some of the work that you've been doing around using artificial intelligence, but also importantly, in relation to some of the sort of budgetary constraints that L&D professionals work within. And obviously, it's interesting coming from an ed tech perspective, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, corporate training, it's it's got like a huge budget and there's like a, the money's there in a way that it isn't perhaps across some of the sort of K-12 or school or higher ed sector. But the reality sounds a little bit different, perhaps. I'm really glad you brought up budgets, actually. Um, it, it makes me laugh because I think we all think, you know, it's the grass is greener, isn't mm. it? And we, we all think everybody's got it easier. And there is a belief that there's a lot of budget in the corporate world. But there really isn't. Budget will be focused on legislative requirements. We have a lot in the travel industry. And those are things that we need people to have completed in order for our business to operate. Mm. Because if people haven't completed certain compliance training, they can't fly or they can't sell or they can't do this. So there is a, a, a focus there on budget. And for example, when the Thompson brand moved to the Tui brand, that's obviously a huge hearts and minds piece. And so mm. budget will be set against that. But generally, there aren't budgets there. And it's very difficult for us to prove the return on investment. There may be an issue that there is in the business and there isn't training there because of the cost of taking people out of their day jobs, of them traveling to the training. And, you know, people can't see how that training can be available. And then you might be able to think, well, you know, if we did it digitally like this, then you wouldn't have those issues. It halves the time that people mm. are, need to take off work. They don't need to do the traveling. But how can you prove the return on investment for it? Because currently the training's not happening. So you can't say it's mm. going to be X amount cheaper because nothing's X amount cheaper than nothing. Mm-hmm. And you can't show the difference it will make to the business because there's no measurement at that point. You can only show the difference it's made to the business after that training's being developed. So proving return on investment is a real challenge. So where you've collaborated with partners sort of to deliver some newer modes of this kind of training, how has that got around this sort of chicken and egg situation? Well, I've got two really good scenarios. The first one was something we delivered for apprenticeship training where there was a desperate need. And actually the business case for the need was not difficult to prove in that one. I'll talk you through that one in a second. The issue we had there was the amount of money and the time. The the other one was an interesting one. It was something I could clearly see we needed in the business, but it was a completely new concept and I was never going to be able to prove that return on investment. So when I went into it, I had two possible free scenarios to kind of get buy-in in the business. 
So I'll, I'll talk you through both of those to give you an idea of how we've been able to get over that problem. So the first one was around apprenticeship training. Um, and it was around the time that the levy came in, which is an apprenticeship tax that the government, I'm not an expert on the levy, so please anybody out there that is, don't judge me by the way I explain this, just how it works in my brain. It's an apprenticeship tax that the government have put in, in to encourage people to do more apprenticeships in a larger business environment. And I think it's a great idea. At TUI, we already had some really established, great quality apprenticeships when this came in, um, but it gave us the opportunity to look at what else we were going to be delivering. And we were working very hard on a lot of new apprenticeships that were coming in. One of the established apprenticeships that we had was on travel geography, and that's been running for over 10 years now, very successfully. The problem was over that period, the content that had been first created for it by an external organization had come out of date, had become out of date, and also the technology that was used to deliver that was actually no longer functional. You know, if you look at what technology was doing 10 years ago and what it's doing now, it just wasn't compatible. So the assessors had been delivering that training face-to-face. Now, if I take you back to what I just said about us in an opportunity where we were now suddenly able to broaden our apprenticeship offering, we couldn't have our assessors focusing on face-to-face delivery. We needed them to be doing, you know, what the core things that assessors do, you know, supporting people and driving them and getting them through that. And they needed to be doing that on a much broader range of apprenticeships. We couldn't move rapidly with looking at the content because of the legislative changes that were coming into apprenticeships at the time. And so we sat there and it was a bit of a waiting game. What we ended up with was a requirement to deliver 140 modules of learning, about 70 hours of learning in eight weeks. And this was digitally, obviously. So we looked at how we could do it in-house. We couldn't. It was going to take us about eight months of dedicated resource obviously missing that target. We looked rapidly at whether we could do it externally and even throwing external resources at it really wasn't going to speed the timescales up. And the cheapest budget that we quote that we got on that was 500,000, which was significantly more than we had to spend on such a piece of training. Now, we'd seen earlier in the year at a conference Somebody talking about a tool they were developing that uses artificial intelligence to analyze source content and deliver an output that's a high quality digital learning experience. So they won't like the way that I'm going to explain this. But again, we're back to how it works in my brain. A bit like a sausage machine. You put your core content in, Word document, PowerPoint or something like this. The AI analyzes that content and then structures it into what it knows will work into a great piece of content that will work for an adult learner. So what it did was exactly what I said. We gave it the core content as PowerPoints, as Word documents, and then it sent us back learning that provided core knowledge to learners to read. That was the first phase of it. They then went into the next section, which reinforced what the learners had covered using a whole range of different questioning techniques. And then when they've completed that training, it recommends required revision based on the results of what they did when they were getting the questioning techniques. And that is personalized to the individual user. 
The AI also looks at the core information that's in that source content and then goes out to the internet to specific areas. We used Wikipedia to pull in additional content if people want to delve into a specific topic in more detail. All of that happened automatically using artificial intelligence. But here's the really fantastic thing. This tool could deliver us two or more modules in a day. So it was obviously the way forward. At the time, the tool was still at its beta phase, but we were really lucky. The tool was called Wildfire, and the Wildfire team agreed to work with us with the tool at that beta phase to help us get this project out. So we knew that we could get those 170 modules in the timescale, but we were bit ignorant at the time about how much effort it would require from us. So, so far, it sounds like we do nothing and it delivers everything that we need. And I think it's a realization from anyone that's thinking about using AI and getting the benefits from it. Let's look at what we have to do. If you're delivering a piece of digital learning, you obviously have to test everything. And that testing is still done at a human level. Instead of us testing 140 modules over an eight-month period, we were having to test 140 modules in that eight-week period. We really, really struggled keeping up with the artificial intelligence. So we had to completely change the way that we worked. We had to work from an agile approach, both from a testing perspective and also a project management perspective. And we were still working all hours of the day and night to keep up. But the amazing thing at the end was that we actually delivered 140 modules in six weeks and the budgets were eight times less than they would have been if we'd gone for a more traditional approach. And how did you go about actually once once we've you've got this project which must have been a huge relief to to deliver in such a tight time frame but and then in terms of assessing the impact on the learner you know obviously you mentioned the testing how did you go about doing the review and the assessing and, and all of the rest of it? So obviously we were in on a very tight time scale, but we did want to include the user testing with it. So what we did was we got some of the people that were a good way through their, their travel geography apprenticeship. So they knew what it was all about and they worked with us and they advised us on changes. And we did make some very specific changes. So one of the clever approaches with the questioning techniques was that basically you covered some content and then it questioned you on what you'd learned. And originally we just had open input but there was a change to the approach so it would say to you something like what's the capital of I don't want to pick one because I'm going to show my ignorance about travel geography what's the capital of England (laughs) there you go there's one I can do and it would just be open input and you'd have to type in London but but actually there was a feeling that it, it kind of did leave you a bit stuck at that point so the way that it changed was if you if you got it wrong it would give you the first letter and if you got it wrong again it would give you the second letter and then the third letter if you still got it wrong at that point what it would do would uh, it, it would give you the answer and then that would come back to you in the feedback to tell you that that was something that you needed to go back and study in more detail because you didn't pick it up in the questioning techniques and the other bit of AI that we added in was if there were words that were particularly difficult to spell because they were unusual in the English language that the AI was able to recognize that you were 
we're nearly there and give that to you as a right answer. And then again, in the feedback, tell you that actually you do need to learn how to spell this word, but you did know what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So those changes were made based on user feedback. And then after we did the delivery, we surveyed the apprentices and we got some fantastic results. It was a completely new approach for them. 95% of them rated the design approach as good or very good. And 62% could identify a specific sale that they'd made based on the knowledge that they'd gained in it. And soon the whole of the retail estate were asking us why they didn't have access, why it was only the travel geography apprentices that had access. And there was such an interest in this. We have around 6,000 people in our retail estate. And then we're about, sorry, I lie, we have about 6,500 in our retail estate. But where the 6,000 comes from is that within a year, we've had 6,000 voluntary completions from those 6,500 people on this travel geography learning because they recognize it would help them day to day. That's amazing. And will you be continuing to use that sort of approach for other kind of learning objectives going forward, do you think? Yeah, the right project hasn't come up for it just yet, but we will definitely use this approach for for more things because it was so successful. And I know that now the tool itself has moved beyond the beta phase. They've been doing extraordinary changes to it. You know, you can have 3D menus and the AI that sits behind it is a lot more sophisticated. So actually, because it was at its beta phase, if you were to look at what we delivered when we did this, it's quite basic compared to what the tool can achieve now. Um, And so we would definitely use it again in the future. It's the right project and the budget was available. Mm-hmm. And then what was the other project that you, you had in mind as well? Okay, this is a completely different and a really interesting one. And it started off with leadership. Now we've delivered it, we've expanded it to induction, we've expanded it to other support, and we've got big plans for it moving forward. It's going to become a much broader training tool. But it originally started when we had a real training requirement for our leaders. We've got a really robust leadership approach we call it vibe and there's a lot of training that goes around this but because of our workforce it's quite difficult to get training to people we have a fast-paced business and our leadership workforce are continually traveling globally so you can have a really robust training strategy you know to give people but if you can't get to them how do you do it The issue that we had was that people were circumnavigating the training that we had on offer and going to Google. So as well as face-to-face training, we had a range of different content, click next, micro-learning, curated content that was available through our LMS. But the LMS was clunky and it was difficult to get to what you needed. Going to Google is great, but the problem is then you're learning the Google way not the TUI way. And we work in a matrix environment. So I could be working on a project today with one area of the business. And in three or four months time, I could be working with a completely different area of the business in a completely different area of the world. If we've all picked up different ways of doing things, because we've gone to Google, rather than doing it in a greed TUI way, you lose really valuable time at the start of a project. So this was happening more and more. And another issue that you've got, if you're just going to Google and anybody in the education sector, I'm hoping that this will immediately make sense to you. If you're just going to Google, you're only learning your known unknowns. What about 
the things that you don't know you don't know. Um, and here's a sentence I've said a hundred times in the last year, which is a killer. If you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> you're not going to fill that learning gap. So we needed to come up with a solution that would get people to that knowledge that was doing it the two-way way, quickly and easily, recognizing that people felt like what they were getting, you know, they were getting it right from Google, and also make sure that we filled those knowledge gaps. So when we were talking about it as a team, we came up with the concept of a tutor bot. Worked like a chat bot, you would ask your knowledge questions and it would take you to that great piece of content. We immediately knew that this was the right answer. So we were talking about the possibility on this and people were saying, well, no, we've got all of these other ways of delivering training digitally. We can't be looking at another platform and another approach. So we accepted that and we started to think about how we could build a proof of concept without that kind of AI component that comes with the chatbot so that we could prove that proof of concept in-house. And we came up with, at that time, a, a very basic approach was that we would create all of the knowledge as baseline content, create a sort of a site map that was available through the internet with an A to Z index, and that would take people to the core content. And then there'd be links within that core content that would branch them out to the knowledge wherever that was. So that was completely free and something we could create in-house. But we were really lucky because word that we were looking at this sort of filtered out. And an organization that was looking to build a tutor bot got in touch with us and asked if they could work with us as a proof of concept. They would start with their blank sheet of paper. We would start where well, we'd already started building the work that I just talked about. And then they would build their tutor bot to work to our requirements and give us a beta that we could then go out to the business with and show them how the proof of concept worked. So the more we got into this build, slowly our business case grew and grew and grew. And I think when you're looking at finding the budget, the lesson I learned here was yes, as educational professionals, we can clearly see that the benefit of delivering learning is going to be that there's gonna be that knowledge transfer and people are gonna get better. But sometimes it's difficult to prove that. We had a massive win to the business using this tutor bot. The tutor bot, which is actually very reasonably priced functionality, sits above a lot of platforms that are very expensive to the business. So our learning management system costs us an awful lot of money every single year to deliver out to the, to the business as a whole. Our intranet has a big annual license. And there are other places where the content that we directed people out to had a huge budget impact. So what we were able to do is put the chatbot, our, our chatbot's called Otto, above all of these different platforms. It doesn't impact any of them, but people can now go into the chatbot and say, how do I write an objective? And it comes back, it gives the chatbot says to them, you know, just about 100 words of high level information and then directs them out to a number of different options wherever they are, whether that be on the LMS, whether that be on the internet, whether that be on the internet. And so it's driving traffic to those bits of the business where there has been big spend. And the other thing we've been able to do with that, to fill that you know, known unknown, is if someone wants to come in and say, how do I write an objective? 
Otto can then say to them after it's directed them to that right piece of learning. And if you're writing an objective, have you got a really clear five-year strategy so you know what your objective is helping you to achieve? If you haven't, here's how to set up your strategy. So we've been really able to prove the ROI there. No, it's, it's, it's really fascinating because listen to you speak. I can hear from the listener's perspective to this podcast how transferable some of what you're saying is. So, for example, when you were talking about the difficulties of teams and leaders, you know, traveling and how do you get that sort of learning to them? It made me think of also distributed teams. People often talk about L&D, but perhaps not in the context of this increasing trend towards distributed teams and the challenges that that bears. So that was really interesting. And then again, the sort of culture of learning within an organization. So, you know, bringing people back to the the TUI brand and the, you know, the information that is important and sort of business critical. And also that, I mean, I've talked to universities and how, you know, for them, it's also retaining that brand and that essence of what that university means. And and so it, it kind of travels across as well. And then also we talked about implementation before. So Dr. Neelan Palmer on the podcast before has talked about, you know, ed tech or educational technology or learning technology can have these benefits. But like you said, you know, people, they do need to realize that there is an implementation cost. And so it's sort of picking and choosing your projects carefully and the time and the training that's needed for them to bed in. Absolutely. It reduces the time in the long run. But actually, often that setup time is much bigger than you can even comprehend to begin with. So it's getting that balance. It's it's almost like the agony of when somebody new comes in and you're having to spend that time building their knowledge and capability so that in the long run you benefit from their skills. And, and you know, it's exactly the same with this. It, It requires an awful lot of upfront work for the long term benefit. Absolutely. And you seem to have gone about it in a very savvy way in terms of sort of partnering and piloting with your sort of external partners and and sort of both kind of working out the process as you go, which I I really like. And I think there's more and more of that. It's what I said right at the beginning, actually. Mm. It's having a clear vision of where you want to be and what you need to achieve. And then keeping an eye on the business and seeing whether any of the issues in the business actually fit in to your your journey and also obviously for new things you haven't even anticipated but then keeping an eye out on how technology is moving and how you think you might achieve something today could actually be achieved in a completely and much different and much better way in just three weeks time because of something that happens Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we had a great response to the TutorBot so far. We did, after the launch, it was launched, uh, hard launched in just May this year. And we did a, a, su- a user survey two months afterwards. And 85% confirmed that the TutorBot met their learning need. 73% felt that the time they spent with it was really valuable. And the most exciting response to us was that only 2% of people felt that their time would have been better spent in Google. <laughs> that's the, the that's the big win, yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's also the kind of rabbit hole effect of going into the internet, isn't there? You know, you, you go on there for to look at how to write a pitch deck and the next thing you know, you're looking at cat videos. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but from a 
a mental health perspective, that could be very valuable. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, you, you can do that rabbit hole thing, though, through the tutor bot. It's just then that the tutor bot's taking you to new and interesting things you may yeah. discover that are going to make you better and better at work. Valuable learning. Uh, very quickly, because I know that you have to pop off soon. Who sort of inspires you in the L&D world or the wider world? And how do you go about getting your own learning and inspiration in this space? So whether that's, you know, books that you've read that you love or podcasts or networking or whatever it might be. I guess there were two things that inspire me. I wouldn't say that there was a particular person that inspires me. What I spend a lot of time doing is watching videos from conferences, and I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn because I find that very, very useful. So it, it wouldn't be one specific person that inspires me, but it's just keeping an eye on what's going out on out there in the big world and what's hot at the moment. And so it could be one completely different person one week and you know, than it would be on another week. And they're not necessarily all people in the digital learning world or people in the learning world at all. It, it, it could be absolutely anybody. In fact, I've got an 11-year-old son and he spends a ridiculous amount of time on YouTube. And I find kind of some of the, the YouTube stars doing gaming and things like that yeah. fascinate me because I'm thinking, how is this engaging my son for such a lengthy period of time? Yeah. Because every time I create a video, I test it on him, and I've now got his attention for one, one minute, 11 seconds. <laughs> and that's how long I try and make my videos, how long they will in, you know, keep my son engaged. But these people can in, you know, keep my son engaged for hours. Yeah. So th that inspiration can come from all over the place at the moment. And from a technology perspective, it's also really, really valuable to keep an eye on what's going on out there. And I'm going to mention the dreadful Google word, which I, I, I do love Google. We all love Google. But actually going on to Google News on a weekly basis. Yeah. And you'd be amazed how many trends you can pick up. I mean, whether it's a press release that somebody's released mm. or just some new knowledge and information and that's those are kind of the ways that I really keep up to date with things. I'm also lucky that we work with some fantastic suppliers when we do have budget and they're very, very good at the thought leadership piece and pointing you into the right direction. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really super interesting and also quite astonishing what you achieved with all these usual constraints that we work within. But yeah, so really thank you for sharing that with our listeners. If people are kind of keen to follow your own work, how should they go about doing that? Well, I'm just experimenting at the moment with LinkedIn. I'm probably a bit backward on it because the rest of the world's been using it forever. So I'm all over LinkedIn at the moment and do feel free to meet me there. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Henrietta. Okay, thank you for your time. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening in and I do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you. Don't forget that for events you might be interested in around the world, you can go to the edtechpodcast.com forward slash events. The Battle of Ideas, Reimagine Education and Times Higher Education Live are all coming up. That's all for now. Thanks for subscribing and listening. Bye bye.